Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We're here back at the bookstore, Arson, with a local author and one thing that is a favourite of both of ours, a collection of short stories. Yes, we're reading Jenny Shank all the way from South Boulder. And um, the book is Mixed Company, and it's a great collection of short stories, most of them happening in Colorado, Denver, or Boulder. Um, Fort Collins, I think one of them is that. And uh, it's just a wonderful story that covers all different kind of topics. Um, but there's a lot of sports in here, which we can get to, because I used to be a sports writer, so I kind of like that. Well, it is uh, great to have Jenny join us here at the bookstore. Welcome. And the title is Mixed Company, and that's really a theme through all of the stories. It's different types of people sort of brought together. And there was one particular story that just jumped out at me because I think there was a, a reference to KGNU, at least a community radio station in Boulder that plays a lot of bluegrass. So I took that as being KGNU. And that was the story Local Honey. And I loved this one because it had so many contrasts in it, but it's essentially about these white parents, middle aged, middle class parents in Boulder who adopted an African-American young boy. And they take him to a Wu-Tang clan Wu-Tang Clang concert and so a lot of it plays out there it starts and ends there but there was just the way you wrote about the differences there was one scene where the mom looks at the reflection of the family and she says we look like a rehabilitation program for old faded hippies and bright young people take us through local honey and, and why you wanted to have the there is the age differences because you've got a teenager rebelling against his parents but then you have interracial adoption and you know all the different complexities and the different personalities involved in that yes thank you so much for inviting me here and local honey is one of my favorites it's one of the ones i've been reading at when i do bookstore readings um that came out of i just have i have a bunch of friends who are either um interracial adoptees or who have adopted children of a different race and just kind of not really interviewing them, but just, you know, watching, observing. And then um, also um, I researched a little bit about it and it kind of, and then also I was a music writer in Denver for many years. And um, I went, you know, when I was in my late twenties, probably I went to a Wu-Tang Clan concert and I just really got bashed around <laughs> more than any other con concert I'd been to. And I thought, this would be really funny to have a middle-aged woman in this situation. And so I had that in the back of my head. And that's how stories often come together for me is when two things spark together. So I had in the back of my head, put a middle-aged woman at a Wu-Tang Clan concert. And then I also thought I want to write something about interracial adoption. And then one day I was, um, I was in Taos at the Laughing Horse Inn, which is a place where I think D.H. Lawrence used to stay. And there was a family there who look a lot like the family described here. I was at the breakfast bar and I noticed this bright young man um, getting his breakfast. And I just turned and looked back at his parents and I'm like, oh, they're, they're white. They're older white hippies. And it kind of all sparked when I had that image of the family plus um, this woman at a concert and I brought it together. I thought, well, why would, why would she be at the concert? Well, she wants to bond with her son because she feels like he's pulling away from her as a teenager. 
And so that's how the fiction got made. <laughs> I love that imagery that you have of the young man, that he emanates his own life force. He almost has a, a light that shines on other people and an energy that just can't even be described. You can be in a room with him and just his emotions just seep out, good or bad. He just sounds like this wonderful, effervescent teenage young man and he's stuck with these aging hippie parents who are doing their best, but he could just even sense the let alone the racial component, but just the dynamics of the parenting. Yes, and that's the ambiguity because I think um, you think that it's the racial component that's causing difficulty, but really he's just a teenager and teenagers have friction with their parents, whoever their parents are. And so I think that the parents in the story are trying to sort out which of our difficulties is due to the racial differences and which is due to just normal situations between parents and children. And yeah, I had, um, I tutored a teenager when I was in my early 20s. And I just remember, um, you could feel her emotions, like if I got something wrong on the math, because you're supposed to be the tutor, <laughs> and make her redo it. And I was like, Oh, no, you could, she wouldn't say anything. She was grateful for the tutoring, but you could feel it. <laughs> and so that's what I captured in in that description of him. You know, that that this, what you're talking about with the tutoring comes up in another story. And mm -hmm. one of the things I really enjoyed about the collection was as you read further into it, um, these themes develop, kind of these recurring uh, tropes almost. They're, they're, you know, the stories are all different and they're all original, but at the heart, you can start seeing some commonalities. And you wrote these stories over like a 20-year period, really. Mm -hmm. Did you start seeing those commonalities yourself and start thinking how will they sit next to each other in a book and, and what do I want to explore more of or less of? Or It's funny because I think I just write about similar things when I'm writing stories. And I think it's all, it's all originates from how I grew up in Denver during the era of court-ordered busing for racial integration. So I was just always, starting when I was six years old, I was bused from Southeast Denver to um, kind of out near mile, the old Mile High Stadium to a school that was mostly Mexican-American and had um, developed a curriculum during the Chicano rights movement. And so we had Aztec murals on the wall. We did a lot of Spanish. We did like a lot of Mexican festivals. So I was just immersed in that. And then a few years later, I was sent to Northeast Denver to Five Points, and the school was almost all black. And I was immersed in that culture. This was like late, I think it was early 90s. And so, um, you know, I just remember the music, especially because there was music that wasn't being played on the radio yet, like NWA and Public Enemy, and the kids at school were playing it. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And the things they were wearing was, was different than what people were wearing in my neighborhood. And so I was just constantly immersed in different cultures. Um, and that's what felt normal to me because I grew up like that. And so um, I think that I see stories in situations where people of different backgrounds are kind of forced to be together and contend with each other. And so that's what makes, that's what sparks a story for me. And so I think that that's how the commonality comes about because whenever there's a situation that I'm in, um, that I notice, oh, this thing is happening here. <laughs> I pay close attention and I find a story a story there. So the being bust in the schools and the integration of schools is really directly looked at in the story Lightest Lights Against Darkest Darks. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just read the beginning of that and we could look at the writing and just talk, because that, that story really addresses it head on more so, I think, than 
than the, all the other stories do. It, while it's in yeah. there in the other stories, this is really about a middle school kid. Yeah, sure, I'd be glad to. And that's why I put it, I think I put it as a second story because I thought, oh, this will give people a clue as to what's going on in all the other stories with the busing. When I opened my locker the first day of junior high, I found a bra hanging from the coat hook. It's assertive cups, the grayish drab of whites washed with darks. I shut the door before anyone saw. Most of the white families left the district when busing began, but my parents stayed. So I came in with the busload of Southeast Denver kids that were shipped a half hour north to Cole Middle School to mix things up every day. The locker partner assignments were meant to encourage crosstown friendships, but that was hard with kids who wouldn't see each other after the bell rang. According to the slip of paper my homeroom teacher had given me, my locker partner was named Erica, and as I stuffed the, studied the combination, trying to memorize it, she brushed past me, flanked by two chattering friends. She opened the locker, snatched the bra out, and stuffed it in her backpack like she didn't care who saw. Hi, I said, too quiet for her to hear. That morning I'd worn a red bandana through the belt loops of my jeans, a fashion statement I'd read about in 17. An eighth grader who caught the bus at the same stop convinced me to take it off. To make me feel better, the eighth grader said that another kid had worn British Knight sneakers to the bus stop and ended up going home when she told him that they were Crip shoes, BK for blood killer. As I thought of the bandana bald in the bottom of my backpack, I hesitated and Erica walked off without acknowledging me. I placed a few books on the locker's lower shelf, hoping she wouldn't mind if I claimed that as my own. That's author Jenny Shank reading from one of her stories that's part of the collection, a new collection of short stories, Mixed Company. And you said yourself, Jenny, you grew up in Denver during a time where busing was happening. This story features that predominantly, but it also shows you how the kids all found a way to get along despite the differences. And one of this was the art class that they had. And there was an art teacher that, that plays a role in this. And the art teacher herself uh, represents maybe a cross between, I think she's a white woman, but then she loves to go to Jamaica and she's got photographs of her there with uh, presumably a boyfriend or something in, in Jamaica. And there's endless speculation about what's going on then with the art teacher. I mean, what was your experience about finding commonality when you were going to yourself being bused to schools where the cultures were so different and kids were coming from such completely different backgrounds. Yes, I think I think it's easy for kids to come together as long as um, there's no messages from adults that they should watch out for that other kind of person. Um, I was as into everything that my peers were into. Like I remember when I was a little kid, like six years old or something, the first ghost story I ever heard was La Llorona from my classmates. And can you imagine how interesting that is to hear the story of La Llorona, like told from another kid, like, oh, my uncle saw her. And <laughs> it was it was enchanting. And then um, there weren't, so in the period before I was bused, there, when they first started busing, I have read that there were fights between people from different sides of town. But by the time I got there, um, pretty much all the white flight had already happened and everything had pretty much settled down. And um, of course there were, there were jokes and things like, I know I got called like white girl a lot, but it's really not, it doesn't bother me <laughs> at all. And it was never malicious. It was just kind of joking. Um, and there, but there wasn't too much racial animosity. So I just felt like it was a great situation to grow up in. 
So in a lot of the stories, um, the narrator or the main character is, is sort of a caretaker, a caretaker or a tutor or like, so you have some couple that are mothers that are concerned about their children. Um, and then the couple that were those tutors. And like we talked about in that one story earlier, a lot of the stories are at a transition moment. Like there's a story, Lay Sexicana, which is about a tutor and the, the, the girl being tutored has kind of outgrown the need to have a tutor, but the tutor can't let go. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and, and kind of this, this need of these different characters to, to take care and, and their difficulties in tr transitioning out of that. Yes. I mean, they're trying to be caretakers. Um, they want to be, that's the role they're in. But then I think they, a lot of them end up learning, oh, this kid that I was helping is teaching me a lot more. Um, and I think it comes from them being put into a world that they're not um, the master of. Like, for example, the story about the, the football players. Um, I tutored CU football players, and I was brought in, you know, the brain to, to tutor them. But they were way better. We were studying um, American Sign Language, and they were way better at it than me because it's physical and they could they could watch the teacher doing the signs and just remember them and I need to like take notes and have a book um, and so I, I always found myself in situations like that where um, the tables were turned like I'm supposed to be the nerd but the football players were really the smarter people in this situation and so in my stories I explore situations like that where the person who the caretaker is trying to take care of actually has more knowledge, more savvy, something to teach. Um, and usually the caretaker is the white person in my stories. <laughs> so um, that's how I approach that. It's usually, you know, a woman who's, who's pretty buttoned up. Her, her life has sort of narrowed. Maybe she hasn't realized her ambitions and she hasn't quite given up, but it seems like it's been a long time and she's been stuck. And something starts happening in these stories, perhaps to get her unstuck by seeing these people that she's trying to help, whether it's the football players or the uh, the girl who's now in college in one story. And I, I thought that was an interesting movement. Just this, you know. And you mentioned yourself that you were a music writer for several years. Did you? I guess you know that feeling of being stuck or having your possibilities narrowed as you hit your maybe late twenties. Did you feel? Do you feel that? And did you, does that come out in the stories or where, where is um, that coming from? Yeah, I think a little bit, just, I think from having uh, stuck around Colorado, like, uh, like for example, I went, I went away to college. I went to Notre Dame. Then, um, I had this opportunity. I was offered, um, an internship with Conan O'Brien in New York, but it was for no pay and I had no money and I knew no one in New York. Um, so I was like, oh, I can't do it. So I ended up coming back to CU and I went to CU Boulder for creative writing. And that was good too, because I met Lucia Berlin there and she became my mentor, my teacher. So it wasn't like terrible, terrible choice <laughs> to come here. But um, yeah, and then once I was in Colorado and making my way as a music journalist and, um, you know, it gets limited, especially by the fact that a lot of the places I've written for have gone under. Like I wrote for the Rocky Mountain News that no longer exists, um, several other places. So um, there was a, a feeling, I guess, inside me that like, oh, maybe I should have like tried to move to New York or something to if I had wanted to move up in that world. But 
um, I think in my life and in the stories, you find something that you weren't looking for that's maybe even better than what you might have thought you wanted if you stay in your own place and, and look around mm-hmm. and keep open to different possibilities. From listening to you talk and share your own experiences, it seems that there's a lot of inspiration in these books because you talked about uh, tutoring ASL, American Sign Language, to see you footballers. And of course, Signing for Lineman, one of the stories. There's a PhD student who didn't get funding. She wants to, it's really comic, I think, how you juxtapose her grand notions for doing a multimedia project on Beowulf, the old English, you know, work. And then her boyfriend has these notions. He's like Seamus Heaney, sort of uh, aficionado. And then she ends up teaching ASL, which she, as you said, has a really hard time with because she wants to take notes. You can't, it's visual. And the football players are actually really, really good at it. I, I was intrigued by that because you explain that in the book that um, they're used to seeing the coaches do signs. They're used to that sort of visual communication. So they actually quite excel at ASL. And plus they're physically gifted. They're just physical prodigies. So they can do, you show them something, they can do it. I thought that was incredible. But the other story now that's reminding me of your own stories, La Sexy Canna, is this woman who works for a kind of an independent, you know, newspaper, but she gets free tickets to go to concerts, you know, that are coming through the, the, um, the for the music reviewer. And then she's a mentor um, in a program. Did you do any kind of mentoring in, in that regard as well? I mean, I know you did tutoring and you're a teacher, but did you do that type of mentoring? It's like the big brother program or big sister program yes i did you got me Uh, it's funny because when i write novels they're totally fiction because i feel like there's nothing from my life that's big enough for a novel but short stories i often chip off something from my life and the the characters are not not real people but i take situations and yes i did um mentor a young lady from when she was 12 to when she was 18 um, in denver and saw her graduate from high school. That's incredible. I mean, as Arson was saying in in that particular story, it's almost like the mentor is learning as much from the mentee who then goes on and really sort of outgrows her. And the mentor is is quite needy and seems to really need that relationship. What is that relationship like when you're with a 12 year old to 18 year, years of age? That's such a formative those years are so formative. I mean, what was that relationship like for you? Well, it evolves. And I'm actually going through it now with my own kids. I have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. So there are times when they need you a lot, like um, especially when there's some homework that they can't figure out and they're really nice and they're like, please help. And then there's other times where like, don't look at me, don't talk to me, um, go away. Um, And so your job, I think, is just to like stay loose and be there when they need you and not get mad when they grump at you or reject you. Um, Cause that's, you're supposed to be the adult and you're there for them and they're gonna go through those ups and downs. And that's exactly the same experience I had with the girl I was, I was tutoring and mentoring um, because sometimes she would you know, be slipping behind, need help with homework. Or I took her, I did take her to a, a Destiny's Child concert. That was really cool. Um, but then other times, I mean, especially when she got busy in high school with all her activities, she didn't want to, like, see me, <laughs> this older lady. I wasn't that old at the time, though, too. I was um, probably mid-20s to late-20s. So I was growing up and learning at the same time. And I was navigating that period after you get out of college where you're trying to figure out what to do with your life while I was helping her 
get through middle and high school. It seems like a big moral of that story. And it also, is, I think, is a big moral of parenting in general is that you got to recognize at some point you've, you've done what you can and, and off they go and setting them loose, essentially, as opposed to hovering and continuing to feel the need to, to be that person in their life. Yes. And they will remind you if you, <laughs> you try to insert your, your two cents, they'll be like, you can have that two cents right back. So um, when, if you ever forget that, the hovering thing, you, you know, you're going to always have reminders. You know, there's an aspect of this, of this story, like Sexicana, that we're talking about, that's the, the narrator needs to be like in control of their life and tight control. And I mentioned, said, said buttoned up. So that story ends in a nightclub where she, she meets the girl, and the girl's like, look, I appreciated you, but we don't need each other anymore. And the, the guy who has taken our, the narrator to the show is like, well, do you want to leave now? And she suddenly is like, no, I want to dance. Like, mm -hmm. I want to, it's like she's letting loose mm -hmm. in, in that way, in her sexuality, to, you know, and that came up a few times in stories where, you know, they, maybe there was a friend who was much more frank about sexuality than the narrator, and the narrator said, well, I'm never going to be the person who puts on the red lipstick. But there was a kind of a longing there. And I thought that that added some tension to these stories, too. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where does the narrator, how does the narrator see herself, and why does she see herself in those ways? Um, so I guess what would you comment about that or how did you think about that? Or yeah. when you look back on the stories, how do you think about them? I think it's another situation where all kinds of different people can be inspiring to you in your own life. Um, like I, George Saunders always talks when he's, when he's talking about writing, he talks about this Einstein quote, and I'm not sure if I can get it exactly right, but it's something like a problem is never solved in the plane of its original conception. Like you have to think out in a different way to figure out what's wrong. And so I think all these narrators who are just trying to um, maybe fix their life and become happy just by doing more of what they always do, um, that's not working. So they look across the room and they see someone who's really enjoying their life and thriving and say, maybe I can, maybe I can do a little bit of that. And I think a lot of the narrators were taught maybe the way to get ahead in life is to, you know, be a good girl and study hard and work hard. And then you find even if you do that, maybe you're not getting the promotion, maybe not. So maybe you should stop and just enjoy yourself and not take things so seriously along the way because it's not, life is not a race to get to the top of some hierarchy. Um, life is to be enjoyed. And I think that's what a lot of my narrators um, learn from the people that they're interacting with. All the subjects in, in the book, except for one, I think, is they're humans, but there's one that's a song. And you said you were a music writer. And this one I was really intrigued by, Last Summer's Song. And it's, it's talking about this song that's so relevant, that's played all the time. Everybody loves it. Everybody sings it. And then it becomes Last Summer's Song. And I had a million different songs in my head when I was reading this story. So take us through your, your inspiration for that and, and what it is about a song that captures everybody at a particular moment, usually in the summer, and then everybody moves on from it, or mostly. Yes, um, I, I like that story. That's one of a lot of things that I write. Um, I have to bang my head against the desk and sit there and make mistakes, but then a Occasionally, something slips out, and that was last summer's song was like that, where I was just listening to a song on the radio. I think it was something stupid, like Third Eye Blind, um, whatever their big hit was. And I was just listening to it, and it was a year after it had been popular. 
and you're like, wow, I haven't heard that since last summer. And what happened to the song? And I just started kind of talking to the song in my head. So this is the only um, story that's in second person. And it's short for those of you who are annoyed with second person who can only take a few pages, don't worry. <laughs> it's not long. Um, and I just started talking to the song and how, how much it represents and how much songs get intertwined in our, in our lives, especially in the carefree summer. We always want some kind of anthem, whether it's by Megan Thee Stallion, like Hot Girl Summer or anything. It's usually a carefree, um, light song. But then I also thought about the singer, the band. It becomes the biggest thing in their life, the most defining thing. So for everyone who enjoyed it, it was light, carefree, the band, it becomes a burden on their back. And so I took it through that journey, um, the life cycle of a, a big summer hit. Yeah, I, I was reading an interview by, it was actually, it's an Irish uh, singer and he was talking about this. He had this huge, massive song and he says, it has become a burden because he, people show up to the concerts, half them are only there to hear that one song. And he knows once he plays, everyone's just gonna leave. You know, and he, he doesn't want that to be his career. And I was thinking, God, for many artists, that's probably it. They have all these other uh, songs and, and works. And yet half the people who are showing up at the concerts are just waiting for that one thing. And then yeah. if they don't play it, they're getting booed. And if they do play it, you're sort of damned if you do and, and damned if you don't. And these people are artists, but the audience wants them. I want you to play that song in exactly the way it was on the recording with every crack of voice and every intonation. Um, and phrasing um, and so they can't even have fun with it they can't even like oh, let's do acoustic because the, the the audience would be disappointed if it wasn't sort of a replica of this experience so I think that's an interesting dilemma to be in um, and I think anyone even though I'm not a big huge star or anything I've had situations where I've been reading from the same book or the same story for a while whenever I'm doing a reading and I'm tired of it, <laughs> but to be burdened, to be linked, linked to a song. You think about like for artists who've been around for decades, I mean, Rolling Stones, Bob, you know, any of these ones, and they're probably expected to, you gotta play, you know, whatever. I mean, at some point it must just be forget it and never wanna hear it again. Yeah. Well, you know, Dylan, he, he kind of ignores that. I mean, or if he plays a song, you don't even know he's playing the song till halfway through it because he's changed the arrangement completely. And then I saw an interview with McCartney's everywhere right now. And I saw an interview with him and he likes to please the audience. So before he goes on tour, he'll figure out, of course, for him, it's like, which 20 of my 50 hits am I going to play? Mm -hmm. But, you know, so I guess artists take different approaches, whether you're going to embrace it or, but if you only have one song, mm -hmm. I can imagine that'd be a huge burden <laughs> compared to somebody like Dylan, you know? Yeah. So as a music writer, did you get to go, I mean, you talked about going to see the Wu-Tang Clan, which ended up in your book, Destiny's Child, also ended up in the stories. Well, what is it like going to a concert as a journalist? Because in that uh, La Sexy Canna story, there is the scene where she brings her mentee to the Destiny's Child concert and they're in the press box. She's not there to write an article, though. She just, you know, kind of got these tickets from her colleague. But all the other reporters have to sort of scoot off home and, you know, for, for Deadline got to turn around their article and their review, it kind of takes the glamour off it a bit. It, I mean, the life of a music writer isn't just going hanging out backstage. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I just got to, so often if I was just writing a preview, if I'd interviewed someone and then, oh, you get to go to the show, then I could just relax, enjoy the show. But uh, if you're writing a review of the concert, it was like it was like I described in that La Sexy Cana story. It was really funny because it would be all these teenage girls like, screaming, enjoying themselves, and you're up in this press box, 
in some venues. And it's just like middle-aged writers up there. Like, And I, I think I described them, they look as grim as if they're co covering a political coup because they're just paying attention. What is she wearing? What song? What's the order of the songs? Um, how does this compare to the last <laughs> And they're typing and it's really funny. They're not dancing. Um, and so if you, I think a time or two, I was in a situation where my tickets were for the press box, but I was done with my work. And so I was next to these people working really hard, but I was like, yeah, let's dance or something. And it felt weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'd be a little different. It'd be more enthusiastic. <laughs> um, so almost all the stories take place in Denver or Colorado, but you have one story. The very opening story of the book takes place in France. And I mm -hmm. thought that was an interesting story but also an interesting choice to start this book, which is mostly Denver. You know, the, it looks like Denver on the cover here. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you started the first story in France. You know, why did you choose to put that story first? And what's the genesis of that story? You know, it's, it's a little bit different than the rest of yeah, them. Yeah. So, um, I asked my editor about that. What, so when I was sending out the story collection, I shuffled the stories around a little bit because you don't know, like you're a writer, you don't really know what is your best story or what people are going to like. And so I just wanted to see what appealed to people most. And the one that ended up winning the George Garrett Prize had the French story in, in the beginning. And that's actually, I think if I had to say which of my stories is most acclaimed, maybe it's that one because it was like um, honorable mention in the Pushcart Prize and, and some other things. Um, and so I was like, do I just, is that my strongest story? I don't know. And, and my editor's like, I, I like that one. Let's start with that one. And it does feature Colorado people who are in Paris. So it's like, it, so I wondered about that, if it would put people off kilter if they read that one and then all the rest were Colorado. But um, I just thought, okay, we'll just lead with what my editor likes. <laughs> and um, the genesis of that story is, um, so I married a French guy. <laughs> Um, that story is actually that one. I mean, I write fiction. I change all the characters up, but that's the one that's probably the least fictional. <laughs> um, and I kind of wrote that story for my kids because there's this whole crazy drama family history. And if they ever want to know, like, why, why don't I have a grandma? Like, why is everybody else like have people they can sell their chocolate to for fundraisers at school? And I don't have like all this family around me. I can be like, well, it's a long story. And here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought that was the least autobiographical of all the stories, just because it really is. It's set in, you know, as you said, there's a Colorado woman or an American woman married to a Frenchman. And they're trying to I guess reconnect with his mother who's plagued by mental illness and they're in Paris and has all of this. So I, of all of them, I thought, oh, this is probably the least likely to have any connection to your life. I contain multitudes. Yes, <laughs> you sure do. Yeah. It's, it's very poignant because there's so many things explored in there, you know, relationships and the loss of a parental relationship. And of course, mental illness underscoring that and really how that can just rip apart, not just the immediate people involved, but as you said, generations, because then, of course, you have the children who are disconnected from that generation, too, yes, for different reasons. Connected, disconnected from a whole culture. If you're whole, if you're French, but your French family has disowned you or isn't seeing you at all. And then in what way are you French? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. What you said about the, the truth and the fiction you know, Pam Houston, who's been on the show a couple of times, what she she used to say, I don't know if she still says it, like her 
fiction is like 70% truth and 30% fiction. And her nonfiction is like 70% truth and 30% fiction. So, you know, yeah. you know that, that there's a fine line between kind of a creative personal memoir essay kind of piece and uh, a short fiction piece. And do you feel you have to choose uh, or, or you just write what happens and then how does that? It totally depends. So like, like I said, my teacher, my mentor is Lucia Berlin and she totally took stuff from her life for her fiction. Almost every story that she wrote had um, a non-fictional personal piece, even though she was, she was fictionalizing, she was dramatizing, she was making characters and things like that. So um, I think I, I think I have the most fun when I'm inventing stuff completely, but um, sometimes you just have something to get off your chest. And so um, when I use non non-fictional details, um, you have to figure out how to shape it. Like, do I need all these characters? Can I combine them? How do I um, take the timeline of what really happened and make it more impactful as a, as a fictional story? So um, that is what, what you're kind of doing with it when you're figuring out how to use material from your life. Um, I think sometimes it's easier just to make it all up because when you're using material from your life, you sometimes can um, get locked into what actually happened and not see what the story needs to become. So I, I generally, when I'm writing fiction, I'm more comfortable just making the whole thing up, but I go a whole range. I wouldn't say that I'm like Pam Houston where I have like this percentage that I would say, but um, I do, um, some of them are completely out of the air and some of them are, um, I have the whole scenario kind of set up already for my life. And then I'll ask a question, well, like what if, what if the character did this instead of what I did and then see how it takes off from there. Well, we have been reading Jenny Shank's collection of short stories, Mixed Company. She's been our guest for the month of December at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. This is so much fun to talk about my stories. Well, as we say goodbye to our radio listeners, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. We're going to have more conversation with Jenny. I want to find more about Conan O'Brien and that, you know, the internship that wasn't, but and sports as well, as we had said uh, in the interview, a lot of sports in, in this book. So tune in for the podcast but as we always do at the end of the show we announce what book we are inviting listeners to read along so for the first book of 2022 arson what are we asking our listeners to read we're going to read to break a covenant by allison ames and it's a teen fiction book it's kind of eerie and haunting and ally allison ames is ally to me she worked here for a few years so this is the i believe the second person on the book club that we've had who actually worked at the Boulder Bookstore. We had Mark Mayer a couple of years ago. So I'm really looking forward to having Ali on the show. Well, we look forward to, to reading that book. Invite our listeners to read along with us. And you can catch that interview on the fourth Thursday in January 2022 at 9 a.m. But as always, subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.